0: Well, with that, it is our joy always on Sunday nights to take a look uh, in the Old Testament. Turn with me to First Kings 19. We've seen for 12 messages so far in our series Backstage Before Bethlehem that the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, has been carrying out specific missions, almost all of them centered around the chosen nation of Israel, We've been going chronologically through the Old Testament to see each of his appearances and and really understand his purpose for those appearances. And tonight we're going to see two visits of the angel of the Lord, and we're putting them together because they're both both to the same person, uh, the prophet Elijah, and both for the same purpose, and that is to defend true worship, to defend the true worship of God. In fact, when the angel of the Lord came to earth finally as a man, fully man, fully God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He defended the true worship of his father. John 2, 13 through 17 says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, near the end of his ministry, just days before his arrest and crucifixion. Matthew 21, beginning of verse 12, records that he did it again. do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? Did you hear that? He cleanses the temple. The children knew to worship him, and the leaders refused. Jesus cleansed the temple of those who had perverted the worship of God into their own idol of making money. And this is what it was about it was about idolatry. And he poked their idol and he poked it hard. How God hates idolatry. How insulting. How offensive. How impertinent. Where did idolatry begin? Well, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose to worship the promise of enlightenment, which was given by Satan, rather than to worship their loving creator God by obeying him. And idolatry was often running with the entrance of sin idolatry is the core issue of all sin that is the central part of all issue that in pride we turn our greatest affection to anything other than the god that made us that's what idolatry is that is the core of sin sin and idolatry always go together now the two appearances of the age of the lord that we'll see tonight they're similar in several ways both instances of idolatry that we're going to see stem from apostate leadership From leadership that's turned away from God. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in one instance. And then King Ahaziah, Ahab and Jezebel's son in the other. We'll also see that both have dire consequences for the idolater. Ahab, Jezebel and Ahaziah will all die at the hand of the Lord in judgment. And we'll see that both are confronted by the prophet Elijah. And the central message in his ministry has been, Is there no God in Israel that you would worship these false gods and turn to the false god Baal instead. Well, we find ourselves now in the 9th century B.C. Israel has split into two kingdoms because of disobedience. The northern kingdom of Israel is made up of ten tribes and the southern kingdom of Judah is made up of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. Elijah was a prophet to the northern kingdom primarily, a kingdom in which there were consistently wicked kings. And the worship of Baal was continually competing for the people's attention, for their affection. I want to give you just a brief understanding of the power struggle that was happening at this time in Israel. And the power struggle was between the worship of Baal and the worship of the true living God, Yahweh. Baalism was the major religion of this area of the world, the ancient Near East, for centuries all around this time in both 1st and 2nd Kings. It was especially prominent in Canaan and in, in Phoenicia, which is sort of the, the coastal region near Israel. This is important to understand because First and Second Kings, uh, in particular, it was these cultures, the Canaanites and the Phoenicians, that had a major influence on Israel and on Judah. And one of the key roles of Baal in Baalistic religious thought, in particular the Phoenician version of Baalism, the key idea, the key role behind Baal was that he was the storm god. He was the storm god. And so Baal worshippers believed that their god made rain. Obviously very important in a primarily agricultural nation. And so to prove who the true god is, what did Elijah the prophet declare to King Ahab? First Kings 17, 1 Kings 17.1, I'll just read it to you. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab... As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This was Elijah's declaration, it was his prayer also. James chapter 5 gives another detail in James 5:17 Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for 3 years and 6 months it did not rain on the earth. That's devastating. That is a drought, that is a famine. Of epic proportions. This is a very simple demonstration of who the real, true, living God is. It is Baal. It is Baal who must be proven wrong, and Yahweh is the true living God. He's the God of rain. He's the God over all things. He's sovereign. And so, when Elijah prayed for no rain and it didn't come for three years, the prophets of Baal have a problem. Their theology is—it's out the window. Well, Baal is supposed to be the prophet or the, the god who gives rain. And so what did they do to explain this? Well, Baalism has sort of a, a trap door. Baalism had sort of an explanation for these times when Baal didn't come through. And here is their explanation. Baal was subservient to Mot, the god of death, who occasionally caused drought, which caused death. Then the god Anot would defeat Mot free Baal, and the rain would come again. In other words, a super-powerful god, Anat, would defeat a very powerful god, Mot to finally free a kind of powerful god, Baal. And then the rain would come. This is ridiculous. They're, they're worshiping, at best, even in their own system, the third most powerful god. And so in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, Elijah is seeking to expose Baalism as corrupt and false and to reestablish Yahweh as the true and only sovereign God in the minds and hearts of the people of Israel. As we went through the book of Judges, several appearances of the angel of the Lord, one of the things we saw was that in Israel, Baal worship competed with Yahweh worship at a personal level. This family worshipped Baal. This family worshipped Yahweh. But now, Baal worship would become national policy. This is a whole different ball of wax. How did Baal worship become national policy in Israel? King Ahab has married a Canaanite, Jezebel, daughter of the king of Sidon, a Phoenician city. His name was Ethbaal, and he was not only a staunch Baal worshiper as king, he was also a priest of Baal. 1 Kings 16 tells us that Ahab built a temple for Jezebel, for Baal worship, and he set apart hundreds and hundreds of priests to serve in this temple. But Jezebel wasn't satisfied with just being able to worship Baal herself. She insisted on attempting to promote Baal as the replacement of Yahweh and was extremely serious about silencing the opposition to this goal. She moved Israel from a toleration of Baal worship, which is bad enough as it is, but she moved Israel from a toleration of Baal worship to Baal worship becoming the national religion. And listen, this wasn't just a religious belief. It had much more earthy motives behind it. The worship of Yahweh was in direct opposition to the Canaanites and the Phoenicians of the city-states of Tyre and Sidon. But the Phoenicians and the Israelites, they had two common goals. First of all, both wanted to trade more freely, which was made very, very difficult by a religious conflict And both were under the shadow of the superpower Syria, based in Damascus, just up the road. But again, religious differences kept the Phoenicians, the Canaanites, and the Israelites from being allies. And so, King Ethbael of the city of Sidon, the Phoenician city, sent his fanatically immoral daughter, Jezebel, to marry King Ahab, who would support Jezebel's efforts to change Israel to a Baalism state. And that way, more trade and wealth could flow between the nations and they could take on Syria as allies. By the way, when they tried to do that, it didn't go well and King Ahab died in battle against the, the Syrians. That's another story. But never mind trusting the God who had given birth to Israel. Never mind loyalty to the God who had brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt through great and mighty miracles. Never mind all that. And then we come to the famous conflict between Elijah and Israel. King Ahab at Mount Carmel, Elijah challenged the prophets of Baal. The question was simply, whose God will answer? Now, King Ahab is proof that great evil is not a guarantee of great intelligence, so he took the challenge. He had never, in all of his life, seen Baal do one miracle, and yet he rolls the dice that it's going to happen now. And the angel of the Lord is going to appear to Elijah twice, So we're going to take away from tonight just two simple lessons. First of all, God will defend true worship. God will defend true worship. Now we have to work our way up to 1 Kings 19 just a bit. Ahab gathered 450 prophets of Baal. They met Elijah on Mount Carmel with much of the nation coming to watch this contest Baal's prophets placed a cut-up bull on their altar, crying out to Baal all day to burn the sacrifice. Elijah set up an altar with wood and a sacrifice as well. He ordered that it be drenched with water repeatedly. You remember the story. Elijah prayed that the people would once again see and know that Yahweh is God. And the fire of Yahweh came down and not only burnt the offering, it burnt the wood, it burnt the water, it burnt the stones of the altar and the dirt all around it. I've never seen dirt burn. The faith of God's people was renewed once again that day. They fell on their face proclaiming, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. And at Elijah's order, the people captured the 450 prophets of Baal and Elijah slaughtered them, as ought to be. Now, because of Israel's unbelief, God had afflicted the northern kingdom with a long drought lasting several years. But God had won a great victory and because much of the nation repented, God sent rain. But somebody wasn't happy that her precious prophets of Baal had been slain. Queen Jezebel, she was not happy. She sent a message to Elijah. She said, basically, before tomorrow is done, you'll be dead. And she is going to go after him. And now Elijah is just, he's just sapped out. He's drained. He's been doing this massive ministry of confronting literally an entire apostate nation and instead of a day of triumph, it becomes very quickly a day of terror. And Elijah fled from the northern area of Samaria, running for his life. And he went south to Beersheba, running almost a hundred miles in all. He left his servant in Beersheba. He said goodbye to him. Elijah was physically exhausted and spiritually battle-weary. And he believed that despite his best efforts, he believed he had failed that Baal worship would grow once again in Israel, and he believed that he was it, that no one else was representing Yahweh and standing for righteousness and standing for the true worship of the true living God. He said a final goodbye to his servant. He traveled a day into the wilderness, and he had a purpose. His purpose was to die. And his despair is at an all-time high. And that brings us now to 1 Kings 19, verse 1. Ahab told Jezebel, All that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So what we see here is this time of just utter helplessness. Victory has now become defeat. And the courageous prophet now just a terrified fugitive. And so Elijah laid down under a broom tree, juniper tree, and he asked the Lord to take his life, but what he hoped for didn't happen. The place he thought he would die instead became the place that the Lord would let him live. And God was so kind to him. He gave him two blessings, really, that were unexpected, unasked for. First of all, he led Elijah to lay down under this broom tree. It's a juniper tree. It's not really so much a tree as it is a a really big shrub. It's a big bush with a broad canopy. It's kind of like a a tent growing out of the ground. It can become about 12 feet tall and it has great shade. It's in Israel from January to April. It's covered in thousands of little white blossoms. And if you smell them, they smell like honey. It's just a, a beautiful place to be. And so the Lord gives him this blessing of a place to be. And second blessing he gives him instead of dying the exhausted elijah simply fell asleep he went to sleep he slipped into that desperately needed time to just refresh his body and in god's tender care at the lowest point ever in his life god began to minister to him in these simple ways how god loves his true worshipers how god loves those that will forsake all to follow him in verse 5 we have this Tender section here. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him. And said to him, arise and eat. Verse 7 tells us, this is the angel of the Lord. This is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Before his birth in Bethlehem. You notice the tenderness here. The angel didn't get out his trumpet. He didn't blast a wake up call. He didn't stand 10 feet away and yell for Elijah to wake up. He touched him. And he brought him gently out of this deep sleep, and he met this simple need. He said, Arise and eat. Elijah had been hopeless and despairing, but the Lord gave him this short rest. And then these three glorious words in verse 6, And he looked. That there's hope once again. There's some little glimmer of hope. There's, there's a ray of light and right at his head was a fresh cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Now, it says a cake. Don't picture it like a birthday cake. A cake was just bread baked out in the open rather than in an oven. It was, a, it was a beautiful loaf of bread. The bread and the water was right by his head. He didn't even have to move. He just kind of had to roll a little and eat and drink and take in his refreshment. He must have really needed this tender care because he was so exhausted he just went right back to sleep. And he slept for a very long time, long enough to be very hungry and thirsty once again. And when the angel of the Lord woke Elijah a second time, he said in verse seven, arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. What does this mean? Oh, the Lord still has something for Elijah. His mission isn't finished. In verse eight, he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food. Forty days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. That must have been some cake. God gave Elijah strength for 40 days. And Elijah was going to Mount Horeb. This is Mount Sinai. It's the same place. But from where Elijah was, it was probably about a two-week journey on foot. This was the opposite of the frantic Elijah running. This is a slow, take-your-time process now. God is beginning to build his confidence And we can infer from the context here that it would have been a time of spiritual refreshment for Elijah. The next phase of his ministry was about to begin. And so now supernaturally nourished by the food given by the angel of the Lord, this was an unhurried and a measured time with the Lord. Don't you sometimes wish that God would just force you to take a couple of weeks and do very, very little? I think he has with a lot of us. It's called coronavirus to just stop and just be And this is what happened with Elijah, and he took his time getting here. This was a a good trip. It was a time of reflection and enjoying the Lord. He's come out of his wish to die, but ironically, his circumstances haven't changed at all. He's still a fugitive hiding from Ahab and Jezebel, and he felt he was the last prophet to defend Yahweh in Israel. Numerous other times when God wanted Elijah to go somewhere, God gave the specific command to go to a certain place. In verse 7, the angel only said, the journey is too great for you. But he didn't specify what journey. It very well could be that this was more of a detour because Elijah was going south. He wasn't going north where the action was. God didn't send him back into battle, so to speak. He sent him the opposite direction, It's very likely he had come to Sinai to somehow connect himself once again with the place where God first gave the law and where God first covenanted with Israel. I can relate to this from a story my my dad told me after much of his life completely fell apart. In midlife, he returned to the same lake in which he was baptized And I was a little boy and I still remember this. I didn't know why dad was wandering into the lake and he got up to about his knees and he just sat there for a moment and he just dipped water on himself. And I didn't find out until years later that he went back to the place where he had proclaimed his faith in Christ just to see if God might use him yet again. And I think that's the same thing that's happening here with Elijah. He's he's resetting. And so when Elijah arrived at Sinai at Horeb, he found a cave, he moved in. And God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. Yes, the Lord had strengthened Elijah, but he still didn't see any hope for Israel. And so the Lord gave him a demonstration. Verse 11, and he said, go out and stand on the mounts before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire and after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. You have the wind, you have the earthquake, you have the fire, but the Lord wasn't in them. What does this mean? It means that at this time, the Lord wasn't manifesting himself in these big, impressive ways. Instead, it's the sound of a low whisper. King James Version famously translates it the still, small voice. Elijah had seen the obvious manifestations of of God's power. He'd seen fire come down from heaven. The prophets of Baal were soundly and obviously defeated by the Lord at Mount Carmel, even after the, the fire, even after this incredible demonstration of the wind, the earthquake, the fire, Elijah apparently went back to the cave. But when he heard the sound of the low whisper, he comes out of the cave. Verse 13, and when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah. It seems that the Lord is making a point to Elijah as he speaks to him in this subtle way. The message seems to be God will not always work right in front of you in ways that you can see. You see the wind and the earthquake and the fire, but that's not what I'm doing, God is saying. There are things you don't see that Elijah didn't have all the information. And so again, God asks Elijah, What, what are you doing here? In other words, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? And Elijah answered once again, verse 14. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And now God gives Elijah. This is the whole point of this story in my mind, a marvelous gift. He demonstrated to Elijah that yes, sometimes the Lord will work in big, obvious, dramatic ways, just like happened at Mount Carmel. But other times, Elijah is going to need to trust God's providence working behind the scenes. And that's equally as effective. And look at this gift to Elijah. a Look behind the scenes. Elijah thought he alone was left as a prophet of God and that Baal worship would prevail in Israel. But look what God tells him in verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. You know what God is saying? At, At Mount Carmel, God didn't finish the battle against Baal worship and against evil kings. He had just begun. And reinforcements were on the way. Because God will defend true worship. If you ever worry about the world defeating the worship of God you don't have to worry he will always keep true worshipers they will always be here and our job is just to gather together as those God will defend true worship he always has he always will there's a second lesson we could get now in 2nd Kings chapter 1 turn with me there just a few pages away 2nd Kings 1 remember King Ahab from Elijah's battle with the prophets of Baal Well, his son, Ahaziah, is now the king. Ahab has died in battle against the Syrians at the hand of the Lord. A few years later, Jezebel was murdered by her own servants, which had been prophesied by Elijah as well. 2 Kings 1, verses 1 and 2. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. King Ahaziah has taken over, and it's a it's a very difficult beginning. Moab rebels, he he falls. The, the Moabites to the east are rebelling against Israel. They previously were subdued, but now there's a problem, and he steps right in into this difficulty. And in the providence of God, Ahaziah has a domestic accident, falling from an upstairs chamber and severely injuring himself to the point that he didn't know if he would live. And so he tells his servants to go inquire in the Philistine city of Ekron and to inquire of the god Baal, here called Beelzebub. This is a variant, uh, by the way, of Beelzebel. It's a name used in the Gospels of Satan himself. And so there's a strong correlation between Baal and Satan. The kings of Israel had a history of seeking any God except Yahweh. And Ahaziah is no exception. He is the king of God's chosen people. He is the king who could call on the one true living God and hear an answer. And yet immediately he seeks after another God. His reflex is to look away from the God who created Israel. He defaults to looking anywhere but to the worship of the true God who made him, who gave him the throne of the nation which belongs to God. And now the angel of the Lord intervenes once again in the history of his people. 2 Kings 1, verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, that's another name for the northern kingdom, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Now, think about this for a moment. Ahaziah knows the story of Mount Carmel. Probably only happened a short time earlier. He knew that Elijah had defeated his father Ahab, showing Yahweh to be the one true God. And now God has given him an opportunity to humble himself, to to do what his father and his mother refused to do. I mean, talk about a horrible family tree. Who are your parents? Well, Ahab and Jezebel. That's that's terrible. And God yet gives him this chance. And yes, his his death is announced, but implicit in this is an offer. In the question in verse 3, the Ahaziah will be given the opportunity to, to give the right answer that, is there no God in Israel? That gives Ahaziah the opportunity to say, yes, there is a God in Israel and I repent to Him. So what will Ahaziah do? Will he bow down to the one true living God who has already defeated his father and mother? He's given one last chance to do so. Will he bow? Verse 5, the messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. This is, I don't, know if, I don't know if we can picture what he, he actually did, but I think comedically we could almost say that that was the moment where he goes, ah, it's Elijah. That same guy who's been bugging my family for years. The same prophet who is the thorn in the side of my father. What should he have done? He should have said, man, this guy won't go away. And apparently Yahweh is not going away. I'd better bow. But he doesn't. And now starts a series of small judgments on the house of Ahaziah through the royal guard. Verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, "O man of God, the king says, come down. Trying to intimidate him. But Elijah answered the captain of 50 If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Do you see that Elijah has been strengthened now? He didn't run. He stood his ground. He had run from Jezebel once before, but now he stands his ground. He calls down fire from heaven on wicked soldiers of a wicked king. This episode is repeated exactly in verses 11 and 12. But now you sense the attitude changing slightly. Verse 13. This is the third time. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. "O man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. What does he just say? What did he just say? These are your servants. These men of Israel should be serving God. Verse 14, behold, this is the captain still talking. Behold, the fire, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Oh, a little change in attitude now, isn't there? This captain doesn't order Elijah around. He begs for his life. He begs for the life of his men. And he confesses that Elijah could kill all of them. That is the humility that true worship of Yahweh demands. That's a worshiper. This is the attitude of contrition and fear, which is rightly associated with approaching God. In this case, approaching Elijah, who is representing God. This is something that the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century has utterly forgotten that we are to fear God that we are to bow before him, that we are to remember that the, that the, the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament is still the same God who would call down fire from heaven to kill his enemies. We're to approach in fear. And now Elijah fulfills his mission to bring the message of judgment to the king. Verse 15, Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. You might insert there a great sigh of relief on the part of the captain. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. There's no repentance, there's no contrition, there's no sorrow. Verse 17, so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Elijah delivers this message to Ahaziah. Ahaziah should have heeded the warning. He already had plenty of evidence. How much more evidence do you need than fire from heaven coming down for Ahaziah once on Mount Carmel three or two times? And it could have been a third time to these uh, men that he had sent. Literally saw fire from heaven coming down and he still wouldn't believe. This kind of reminds me of what the Lord Jesus said. That some won't believe even if they saw a man rise from the dead. They're not contrite. Yahweh had defeated Baal at Mount Carmel already. He had proved his sovereignty over all false so-called gods. But this fell on the deaf ears of Ahaziah and he continued to worship the false god and he did so at the expense of his life. This has been the hallmark message of Elijah's ministry in the northern kingdom of Israel. Is there no God in Israel? He spent his life calling the leadership of Israel to repent and worship the one true, holy and living God. And for the last time to a king of Israel, Elijah faithfully delivers his message Giving the message given to him by the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, before his birth in Bethlehem. You know, according to Scripture, a person who will not worship God proves himself to be essentially worthless. Ahaziah certainly was. What was his legacy? Look back just a couple of pages at 1 Kings 22. The very end of the chapter they're very into the whole book of 1 Kings, in fact. 1 Kings twenty two fifty Here's the legacy of Ahaziah. 1 Kings twenty two fifty one. Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal. And worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. And interestingly, you get a contrast to Ahaziah. Back just a few verses in verse 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa, began, began to reign over Judah, the southern kingdom, in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhi. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat reigned right through the rest of Ahab's reign in the north, and five years past Ahaziah's reign. He certainly wasn't perfect, but he did defend the worship of God. You recall last fall, I preached from Second Chronicles chapter 20, and it was Jehoshaphat who proclaimed in Second Chronicles 20, verse 9, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. What a contrast. Ahaziah sure could have learned from Jehoshaphat. But he refused to worship. And Ahaziah becomes a sobering lesson to humanity. God will defeat false worshipers. God will defeat false worshipers. And so in working with Elijah, the angel of the Lord is given two lessons. God will defend true worship. And God will defeat false worshipers. Now... This is the point where, as Christians, it might be easy to say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I don't have to be concerned about idol worship. This, this doesn't apply to me. That's not what the Apostle John thought. If you read the glorious, magnificent letter of First John, it's, it's positive, it's upbeat, it's all about how if you're in Christ, you love the brethren, and you love one another, love one another. God is love, it's love, 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 all through this letter. And at the end, he doesn't say, love John, He says at the end, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true. It is His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And you go, is there any more to this? That's a terrible ending from a human standpoint. All this positivity, the love of God, the true Son, Jesus Christ. And at the end, He says to Christians, keep yourselves from idols. Now, is John talking about actual false gods such as Baal? No. He's simply telling the believers to beware of anything that would replace God in terms of love and adoration. John is merely echoing the much longer admonition that God gave to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel centuries earlier. Listen to this from Ezekiel 14. You don't have to turn there. Listen for a key phrase. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart, and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. Did you catch that? God is saying, I want to get their hearts back because their hearts have gone off to idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols and turn away your faces from all your abominations for anyone of the house of Israel or of all the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him, I, the Lord, will answer him myself and I will set my face against that man and I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people and that you shall know that I am the Lord. What is the issue? The issue is taking idols into the heart. The faithful, Reformed Scottish minister, James Durham, who was only a pastor for 11 years. He died at the age of 36 in 1658. But he wrote extensively on the dangers of idolatry for the Christian. Durham wrote that there are five things that we could confidently say that we owe to God by virtue of His free gift of saving us from our sins and giving us an eternal destiny with Him. He said that we owe God these five things. Respect. That we owe God love. That we owe God confidence. That we owe God reverence. And we owe God service. And Durham poses five simple questions based on these things that we owe to God. The questions are very obvious. His first question is, what do you respect? What do you respect? We can be guilty of idolatry when anything, even good things, get too much of our respect. So much respect that our happiness depends on that thing. This is something you can't live without, at least in your own mind. It can be anything. It could be a certain income. It could be a certain lifestyle, an ideal spouse, perfect children, the avoidance of pain, on and on and on. By the way, what has the world told us to respect to the point of idolatry this past year? We've been told to respect personal safety, even to the point of avoiding the worship of God. Durham poses a second question. What do you love? What do you love? And he writes this, quote, we commit idolatry when we give our hearts away to created things. We're addicted to them. We pursue them with excessive energy. We dote on them or we sorrow immoderately when we lack them. Meaning when you don't have something that you want, you overreact. And he says there's three ways to tell that your love is excessive to the point of worship. He says your contentment is based on this thing. Your service to God is undermined by this thing and your obedience to God is weakened by this thing. What a great question to ask of everything in your life. Is this the basis of my contentment? Has it hurt my service? And is it weakening my obedience? If it is, it's an idol. Durham asked a third question, what do you put confidence in? What do you put confidence in? Job 31 beginning in verse 24 says, if I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, if I have looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed And my mouth has kissed my hand. What? Your mouth kissing your hand? What is that? That's seeing anything besides God and blowing a kiss to it. It is confidence in that thing. And the writer says, This also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges for I would have been false to God above. A misplaced confidence is exposed when that thing that is idolized is threatened And now you see the Christian idolatry doing anything and everything sinful to try to control or preserve that thing. I've watched this. I've seen this in my counseling office. I've confronted sin. And I've said, you need to stop doing this. And I've seen people get angry and red-faced and very difficult all of a sudden. People I love, people I've known, people I've treasured. Why? Because unbeknownst to me, we just poked an idol. And idols don't like to be poked. Durham asked the fourth question, what do you fear? What do you fear? If you will sin to avoid what you fear, that fear has become an idol. If you won't engage with fellow believers because of the fear of getting hurt, for example, an idol has cropped up. If you fear that you won't have a certain lifestyle and you're willing to do anything to keep it, an idol has moved into your home. If you fear honest correction, for example, then the avoidance of that correction by means of your pride or always having to be right or not listening to others that idol has taken root what do you fear how do you know it's an idol because i'll sin to avoid it and Durham asks the fifth question what do you serve what do you serve anything that has control over you is something that is your master it is that which you serve now and if you make it your life's goal to serve this thing then you have placed an idol in your heart How do you identify idols of the heart? Well, we could boil those five questions down to two even more simple questions, very simple questions. What do I consistently sin to avoid? Or what do I consistently sin to have? What will I sin to avoid? What will I sin to have? You might not be the best person to answer that question. might be your family members who could help you. Listen very carefully here. The consistent sin pattern in our lives it's rooted in something and it's it's not just well it's a bad habit no bad habits are rooted in idolatry they're rooted in something deeper something you want to avoid or something you want to have think for a moment on that besetting sin which continues to plague you and work backwards what's the root what are you trying to avoid what are you trying to have put it this way, if you'll reverse engineer, as it were, a particular sin, you'll find an idol hiding in the closet of your heart that needs to be thrown out. In fact, we could take any command of God, and the consistent exercise of disobeying this command is indicative of idolatry of the heart. Or maybe more helpfully, put it in the positive, understanding your hesitation or your lack of commitment to a particular area of obedience helps root out idols hiding in the closet. And let me just give you a few examples so we can apply this in real life. We could take examples from some commands we receive as Christians in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them to you. Ephesians 4.12 says you're to be equipped for the work of the ministry. That of being an effective Christian in the world. But if you see yourself as aloof, if you see yourself as not part of the church, taking part in discipleship opportunities like others do, what may be the idol? It may be the idol of seeing yourself as above taking part in the church, as different than others, as above doing your part in the body of Christ. And Satan would love for you to continue worshiping this idol of self because Ephesians 4.16 says that when each part is working properly in the body of Christ, quote, it makes the body grow, the church grows. How about this command Ephesians four twenty nine? let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. This is hard to hear but this is what digging idols out of the closet does. If your mouth is an unfeathered expression of venom or gossip or slander of telling stories that aren't yours to tell. What may be the idol in the closet. It may be the feeling of power or control in tearing someone down. Perhaps that feeling of elation that you get when you're conveying information to others. Ephesians 5.3 But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. The continued pursuit of personal sexual pleasure outside the context of a loving marriage that may indicate the presence of an idol of entitlement that I deserve this pleasure It may be an idol of the insufficiency of God. I need this pleasure outside of the expression of marriage. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I've poked that idol a few times. I have some emails to prove it. Because refusal to do this for real, to truly honor and respect your husband, it may expose an idol of I know better or worse. Our culture knows better. Or the idol of judgment that as soon as my husband deserves my respect, he will receive it. It's not what the text says. This is the idol of not trusting God that following his command for his glory is always the right thing to do. Maybe this is the idol of I need to see results because I'm important. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. A refusal to give sacrificial love to your wife. It may expose an idol of believing Christian marriage is defined solely by a wife's submission. It's not. Or maybe it's the idol of believing that marriage is primarily about you. Or maybe it's the idol of believing that you are too important to do sacrificial things for your beloved wife. Or maybe it's the idol of believing that she needs to earn your love before you will give it. Ephesians 6.1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. When a child refuses to obey his or her parents, or, or worse, gives external obedience, but with an attitude in the heart, that's even worse. This may show an idol of pride. I know better, because in all of my 13 years, I have decided that I know what I'm doing. And when I disagree with the authority of my life, I'm going to rebel and make life difficult for my parents. I haven't gotten to do this a lot, but when I do premarital counseling, if I had it my way, I would ask the parents of both of them, both the couple, how did these, how did they obey when they were kids? Because that'll tell me a lot about what could happen in the marriage. Ephesians 6, 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. A refusal to obey those in authority over you shows a refusal to obey Christ, period. There's no caveat. There's no asterisk. This exposes the idol of believing that your boss should be the sole provider of everything good in your life, not looking to God instead. Here's a great example. Today, this very day, tens of thousands of teachers are refusing to go back to work. That is the act of an unbeliever, and they should all be fired and replaced by people who will obey. Ephesians 6, 9, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. A a person in authority over others who lords authority over them because he has that control known as a paycheck who makes life miserable and is unfair and is difficult. This exposes the idol of power and control, of loving that power. I just wanted to give these examples do you see how understanding your hesitation or maybe a lack of commitment to a particular area of obedience helps root out idols hiding in the closet how should you think about idols i have a metaphor i think that's high and lofty that will help you i think idols should be thought about as bugs bugs what do you do with them Now, I know there's always a few in the church that say, but I love bugs. You don't count right now. We're not going to go there. (laughs) You may think you have exterminated them completely. We pay a lot of money, don't we, to have people come spray these horrible chemicals all over the place. We're willing to put up with that so that these little bugs won't come back. Has it ever worked? No, it doesn't work. They have to keep coming back and keep coming back. You have to keep doing preventative maintenance And that's what you do with idols. You have to do preventative spiritual maintenance before they come back. But when they crop up again, you have to smash them and you have to trash them. You have to go after them. For some idols of the heart, for you, you may need to stay right by that closet door, that that closet that they like to hide in. And you may need to be right there with some implement of destruction, such as the word of God or prayer or the people of God. And as soon as you hear that door Creaking open because that idol's trying to peek out again. Whammo, you get it. And you call your buddy in the Lord and you say, I'm tempted by this. I'm tempted by greed. I'm tempted by women. You get in the Word and you say, Lord, I'm not going to stop reading until this temptation is past. And you're exhausted, going, man, I'm all the way to Psalms. But the temptation is past. Or you get on your knees and you say, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep stomping this idol in prayer until. It is defeated once again. And there may be one or two of those idols that you will battle to your dying day. What would God call you to do? Keep battling. Keep fighting. Not for your salvation, that's secure, but for your sanctification. And then praise the Lord, when we see him, we will become like him. And that idol will be stomped once and for all. The angel of the Lord the Lord Jesus Christ expects true worship. He defends true worship because God will be worshipped. And our lives are to demonstrate that just as God insisted Israel demonstrate their loyalty, their fidelity to a holy, and loving God, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to be what? To be holy and acceptable to God. Let's pray. Our Father, make us worshipers more and more. How easily idolatry creeps into our lives and how sad it is when those idols are allowed to pile up in the closet and as long as we keep the outer room clean and think we don't open the closet, everything will be fine. But they wreak havoc in our hearts, in our relationships, in the church. And so, Lord, I pray for each person hearing this that even now, the closet will be opened in a real-life assessment would be made what are the idols that would keep me from true and genuine worship lord i i think this morning we took the lord's table and i wonder how many took it with idols still hiding at home with idols still creeping around the corner asking to share space with god god shares with no one you do not share your glory with any other And I pray that would be the case for us. Lord, sanctify us. Make us more like Christ. Help us, Lord, to seek and to serve you and you alone, for you are worthy. And it is in your name we pray, amen.